0: Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast, I'm Erica, and we have a special Black History Month podcast for you today. With us in studio is writer, activist, radio host, and the James Baldwin of our time. Desmond Cole. Desmond has just released a transcendent book, The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power, which documents the year 2017 in the struggle against anti-black racism. Each chapter corresponds with the month of that year, starting with the police brutality waged against John Samuels. It is the yarn with which Cole uses to knit the experiences of black Canadians' relationships to and interface with... Canadian institutions, specifically the police. In his 2015 cover story for Toronto Life magazine called The Skin I'm In, Desmond Cole exposed the racist actions of the Toronto Police Force detailing the dozens of times he had been stopped and interrogated under the controversial practice of carding. The story quickly came to national prominence, shaking the country to its core and catapulting its author into the public sphere. Sphere. 2017 saw him follow up the Toronto Life story with a CBC documentary special, "The Skin We're In," pulling back the curtain on racism in Canada, which we will link to show notes. Welcome, Mr. Desmond Cole.
1: I don't know how I'm supposed to live up to that introduction, but thank you so much. Well.
0: You know, I wish I could take credit for the James Baldwin of our time, but I can't. <laughs> and
1: I, need, the, <laughs> I, need to, I need to have some words with whoever decides.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I'll tell very, you after. It's
1: very kind. Maybe too kind.
0: Well, to be fair, I mean, okay, so um, I think I DM'd you and I was like, I feel so naked in this book. I feel like you just exposed me. And I feel like that's what you did. Like... I remember reading about the Laurentian pencil, like, for anybody, I don't know if they use them anymore. Do you know? I'm too old. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't... I'm too old, too.
1: I shouldn't be too old to be using pencil crayons, but yeah, back in the day when I was a kid, that was the brand that made our pencil crayons, and, um, you know, I was coloring in my grade one classroom most of my classmates were white students and i heard a student say to another pass me the skin color pencil crayon and these are two white kids talking to one another and what they meant was this like you know pinkish color that they referred to as the skin color pencil crayon
0: it used to be called flesh tone
1: that's right yeah. natural flesh they had all these names yeah and I just remember being completely shook.
0: I Okay, so this is why, this is why I DM'd you and told you that. Mm. Because that was the story where I'm like, oh my God, I remember that. I remember that moment where I, I too was shook. I was like, but my flesh doesn't look like that. Right. And that's when you start discovering the differences and that the differences have a value. And I think it was... Um, I think like I posted on my Facebook about uh, the first time you discovered that you were you know um, different or somebody called you the n-word and I said something like kindergarten on the playground and all of all of the black people on my feed were just posting their experiences I didn't really think it was a thing like when I posted it and I thought Yep, I remember that. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, It is just such a common experience here for black children in Canada.
1: It's almost like these are some very unfortunate um, rites of passage in a yeah. white supremacist society that you just kind of, oh yeah, I remember when that happened. Oh yeah, I remember when somebody that I knew who was a white person who I thought was my friend said something that I couldn't believe and didn't understand why it was wrong. Right. Um it's something that all of us go through, and that pencil crayon story in the book was a way of me saying that, you know, I would have many more of these kinds of experiences as I grew up. Right. And it becomes really hard to maintain your innocence about your country being so called multicultural or so called diverse or inclusive when this is your reality and that um, there's no way to account for that reality except for the fact that this country was not designed with you in mind.
0: Yeah and speaking of which I'm I have this all like written out but I feel like I'm just going to jump back and forth. So speaking of which when you say the country was not designed for us take us through Negro frolics because I think that this this is the basis through which this piece of history is the basis through which I understood you talking about white supremacy and what that means, and what it meant for us on this land. Because we always hear about it from a United States perspective, and I think what you do, which is so great in this book, is that it's uniquely Canadian. Absolutely. Like, I can't remember reading something so fulsome that was, when I say fulsome, I mean like, w- yes, the history is there. I've read other Canadian black history books. But it's meshing that with the stories you tell through a distinct timeline. To 2017 was distinctive, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I feel like it was distinctive too because 2017 we started this podcast. 2017, I developed a voice. I really think that's when I developed a voice, and so taking taking us through this 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 year, and I was like, oh yeah, 2017 was Canada 150, and then I was like, I hope he gets to the to the to the TP issue
1: because you remember that, and yeah. But let's let's start with Negro Frolic Yeah. because uh, that's the first chapter of the book. It's maybe um, a bizarre sounding title for some. Um, but it was a bizarre reality in Canada, um, and an anti-black one. So in the first chapter of my book, I, I, I talk about how um, black loyalists came to be in what is now Shelburne, Nova Scotia. And the black loyalists were a group of people who were enslaved in the United States of America. And um, at that time, of course, we had a revolutionary war between the United States of America and the British who were trying to colonize this part of North America. Right. And the British, as a tactic of war, said to enslaved black people, why don't you fight against these people who are enslaving you? Fight against your masters and come join us. Mm -hmm. We have land set aside up north that we will bring you to once we're victorious and you can come and you can have your freedom and if you fight with us we will sign papers to give you your freedom and bring you up to this new British North America that we're creating and so a lot of black people did that and over a thousand of them won their freedom and came up with the British to what is now Shelburne, Nova Scotia that's in the 1780s but it only took a few months for the white settlers who were in Shelburne to say, what, you're bringing those folks here? Uh-huh. What, we have to share land with them, we have to share a town with them, uh-huh. we have to share resources with them, we have to compete against them for jobs. Well, we don't want to do that. And remember, these are newly established white settlers who are stealing Mi'kmaq territory uh-huh. from indigenous people and p- pretending that they were always there. And now they don't want black people either. And so they created a law that banned what they called Negro frolics. And Negro frolics meant black people dancing in the street, black people drinking in public, black people gambling, and it was expanded really to mean mean any social activity that black people were doing in public that white people found distasteful. And you could be arrested, fined, beaten, or worse for engaging in these so-called Negro frolics. And that is not simply a tidbit of history that I wanted to share with um, Canadians. I wanted to link it to something that actually happened in 2017, in the last day and hours of 2016 leading into 2017, which was, as you mentioned, a young man named John Samuels, who owned an art gallery um, in downtown Toronto, was having a New Year's Eve party. And um, the liquor license officials came to his New Year's Eve party. They said do you have a liquor license for this uh, gathering and he said no I don't it's really common for art parties to do things like this and not have a liquor license but these police and uh, you know officials had been targeting this young black artist and his gallery for months already so they came around on New Year's Eve as well said where's your permit and he said I don't have one and so they said well we're gonna have to take your alcohol and John said okay no problem so only a few minutes after those liquor licensing officials had left, um, multiple police cruisers showed up to John's art gallery, Mm. uh, whereupon one of them tried to take the cash box of money that John was collecting from his guests, Yeah, and then the police um, proceeded to assault John, including using a taser against him. They smashed the front window of his art gallery, and remember, all of this was presumably over liquor that he had already given up like there was nothing for the police to even be doing there but they came in ordered everyone to leave which has no legal basis and then assaulted John in front of his guests who couldn't believe this was happening and were filming screaming at the police officers to stop John was charged with assaulting the police even though they assaulted him he had a friend who jumped in to help him also charged with assaulting the police what was that if not negro frolics if not 230 240 years after shelburne nova scotia the law coming to a black person and his friends who are partying and saying what you're doing here is a threat and you need to stop that is what we see in canada hundreds of years after the legacy of enslavement after black people were supposed to be free on these lands we still see in 2017 and beyond This is the reality that we're still living.
0: So I want to pick up from that, because let me tell you what I picked out of that story. The neighbors filed a noise complaint, and this is how this all started, right? And it is an exact example. We see this everywhere now, where you have white people using state resources to enforce their white supremacy. Always. And the protection, quote-unquote, I'm quoting, of their spaces, the policing of spaces is the primary way colonialist social structures maintain their valuations of all of us. You know, to be excluded from uh, a space is basically telling people that this space is reserved for certain types of people. Mm-hmm. So that is against free assembly and free movement in in. In its construction, and it just and so then we get to um, to carding, right? Not in the in terms of the y'all are gonna have to read this book uh, because I'm jumping around. But carding um, is the first step. I I think it's the first step to surveillance. And so this is the other thing. Okay, so spaces, right? So it's not only excluding people, it's to make sure the right people or the wrong people don't get in to the space. And that's an important part of the way we police white supremacy and we police each other on white supremacy too, right? Well,
1: let's talk about police carding, which is the police practice of stopping people who are not suspected of any crime and asking them to give up their personal information. Police have one job, officially, in this society, and that's supposed to be to enforce the law. The police do not make law, and the police don't have any authority, in theory, Mm -hmm. outside of the law. So they can't come up to somebody, in theory, and say, well, I just want to collect all kinds of information on you. Mm -hmm. But because white supremacy tells our nation that a black person doesn't really have any rights to walk free and that they should be giving up everything that the police ask for because they might be dangerous they might be a criminal they might be a threat people forget that it is illegal in Canada for the police to detain somebody and to ask them to give up any kinds of these information when they're not engaging in a criminal activity Mm -hmm. or they're not suspected to be engaging in one and so the goalpost always moves when we're talking about blackness. Suddenly, the law, the charter, doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you have a charter right not to be subject to unlawful search or seizure. People will tell you, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, if you don't have anything to hide, then you giving up your rights actually shouldn't even be a problem. And so, yes. why do we have rights? Well, listen. It's not just about the police, though, finding black people in public spaces, as you were alluding to. It's about white people seeing black people and saying, I'd better call the police. And in Canada, this takes us back to the legacy of slavery, where when those black people, for example, from uh, uh, the United States, who came up with the British to places like Shelburne, well, slavery was still legal in Canada, for another almost 50 years after that time. So they were coming up to places in British North America where other black people were still being enslaved. So how safe could it ever be for you as a so-called free black person to walk down the road to associate freely with other people? It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Because somebody can take a look at you and be like, I think that person's supposed to be on the plantation. And then the instinct is, you know, we should have somebody whose job is to, to you know, to, check on, know to check on these black people who are roaming around free. And what did they call the practice? What did the police call the practice that we refer to as carding? They call it street checks. Mm-hmm. Because the idea that we're just checking on black people, on indigenous people, mm-hmm. on homeless people, on people with mental health issues, that has been naturalized as if it's just the normal function of the police when their only legal authority is to enforce the law so it is about the policing of black people and others out of public space it is about us not being allowed to walk through neighborhoods where white people don't want us to be. It's mm-hmm. It's about white people being allowed to enact their fears. Everybody remembers the Barbecue Becky video, right? A woman sitting in a park watching black people A public barbecue, car park. A public bar- park, of course. Yeah. And seeing black people barbecuing and being like, I don't know if they have a permit. I should be able to call the police on them." Mm-hmm. And of course, black people can be killed by the police for these kinds of frivolous activities on behalf of a terrified white public, Mm -hmm. right? And so Toni Morrison, God rest Toni Morrison's soul, she taught us that white supremacy turns acts of cowardice and pretends that they're acts of courage. Mm-hmm. So calling the police on black people who are having a barbecue is the most cowardly thing that you can do, mm-hmm. but it is framed in a white context as being, well, I'm protecting other people. Handcuffing a six-year-old girl inside of her school in Mississauga, as I document in this book in 2017, that is an act of extreme cowardice. Mm-hmm. But people will say, but what was the girl doing before the police handcuffed mm-hmm. her six-year-old body? hmm This is the problem. It's transforming acts of cowardice and pretending that they are courage and that's what white supremacy does because white people are afraid.
0: You know what the funny thing is when you're talking about, like, shackling a young girl? All I thought of was slavery. Slavery. How could you not? And that's like the only thing, because who else would shackle a six-year-old girl? And, you know, we don't
1: know the names of the police officers that did that and they faced no consequence that I or anyone else can point to. And there wasn't even an investigation started into that incident until months later when the mother went public about it and told the world what had happened to her precious daughter. And so there wasn't even a sense on behalf of police superiors that, my God, we have to protect this child their instinct was we have to protect our officers. Yeah. And this this is the policing system that people want me to reform. This is why I believe in police abolition. Yeah. Because if you can hear in your shop that two of your officers handcuffed a child and you don't have any instinct except to protect them, that is a fundamentally corrupt system that needs
0: to be dismantled. And so, in terms of carding, why is that so important to the police? I, I know why, but you know. (laughs) Let's just say why. Um, So, why is documentation so important?
1: Because you can control people once you've documented them. Once they have to submit to searches, once I'm at an airport Mm -hmm. and I can't pass to where I want to go without answering all your questions and showing you documents, then I am under control. So, I have to listen to what you're telling me in order to pass. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of it. And let's remember too. The pass law system, which I also talking about talk about in this book, which was created to control Métis people after the Red River Rebellion. Yes, you did. So Métis people are rebelling against this colonial force, and the government of Canada says, you know what we need to do? We essentially need to make a hall pass for indigenous peoples on their own territories. So we're gonna make a pass law system where we give you this pass. And every time you want to go somewhere, you have to carry it with you. So that when we stop you, you have to show us this pass. Now, Mm -hmm. this is just fiction. This is like something a child would make up as like um, a magic fairy tale where there's something real and legitimate and powerful about this Mm pass. It's fiction. But if I have a gun and I can enforce my fiction with a gun then you have to listen to me. That's the purpose of documentation. Because if you don't show me your pass, I don't let you go anywhere. I don't let you do the things that you want to do. South Africa copied their pass law system for black people from Canada. We have to understand that we are not just some passive observers in a white supremacist world. We have exported the tools for white supremacy to other places, including the South African apartheid regime in this country. So we are accountable for that as Canadians. That's our history. We always pretend that that country to the south of us invented these things and that and then we say in 2016 and 17 that those racist phenomena are creeping into Canada. And it's like <laughs> I know. a little late for that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I I always hear it. I always hear that and then I'm like I'm like you're a racist because it's this it's it's a very First of all, it's a very paternalistic way of addressing people, is that, oh, well, you're just listening to all that stuff coming from, so now I'm stupid?
1: We must be. If we don't know our own struggle, but white people can tell it to us, yeah. imagine how stupid we must be. <laughs> let's
0: be like. Let's be real i said on cbc i was on cbc recently talking about the super bowl halftime show and i made i made a comment i guess there were men talking about what feminism is and then Hi. i rolled my eyes just like i just did <laughs> and and uh, the host was like so you know i saw a reaction there like what do you think of what they're saying i said i don't listen to men tell me what feminism is and apparently this was the worst thing I said, okay? Honestly, I thought I'd lost my touch in terms of ruffling white feathers, but I haven't.
1: Congratulations. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank you. I worked hard for it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I also noticed that in terms of surveillance too, documentation is the first step, right? Uh, you cannot keep an eye on people, hence control, if you don't know who the... Pl- the the actors in that space are. Mm. And so um, I think, for example, Bill C-51 is the worst thing that happened in the last like 10 years, 11, whatever, how many, I think it was 2011. And it's because it opened the door to mass surveillance and made it legal. I mean, when you have Greenpeace on your on your list of of like terrorism and terrorist actors, I have questions. So when I see what's going on in B.C. right now, right, right, is that I see everything that we just talked about, the, the carding, the documentation, the enforcement, the space. All of that that we just talked about and
1: the resource, is there. The resources, and material,
0: then the
1: re- ah, right, because right. ultimately, this is the other misconception in Canada: is that we have this very childish notion that racism is about. Personal animus. Yes, right? that racism is about me holding a prejudice against somebody in my heart. Yes, and then wanting to tell them a name or tell them that they're uh, ugly or something like that. When really racism is primarily about controlling space, as yeah. you said, about controlling resources. Yeah, and so. What we're seeing right now where people are blocking railways across this country, incredible, by the way, it's incredible to see this happening in my country, to see people standing in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en Nation against the um, LNG pipeline project. Um, This is about resource domination Mm -hmm. and about land domination, and the federal government telling Indigenous people, it's not your land, It's ours. You don't get to make the decisions. We do, and we can enforce our will at the barrel of a gun. So racism is ultimately about resource control. It's about taking the land. It's about taking the water. And we, as black people, um, obviously there are black people who also have indigenous ancestry. But we, as black people, um, outside of that, we have to see our struggle against white supremacy and for our liberation as being linked to the struggle that indigenous people are fighting for um, the reclamation and restoration of this territory. Mm -hmm. We're fighting these fights together and we might not experience the same things and they might not manifest themselves in the same way but that's where the opportunity for solidarity comes in where we can be in solidarity despite our different battles and join together. And it's so powerful right now to see Canadians. It reminds me of what happened in Standing Rock a couple of years ago in the United States where people were in solidarity and people even from Canada went down to Standing Rock to say this is um, capitalism at its worst and we have to take a stand. And I feel like people are taking a stand here it is wonderful to see we have to continue that
0: listen I'm hearing like people I would never have thought question capitalism questioning capitalism people who are lawyers like I'm just I'm just like I remember I heard this at Christmas okay this guy's a lawyer religious the whole you know Alberta thing he's like yeah I don't know about this capitalism thing it can- I think it-, it needs some reform I was like what like I never saw that coming ever and it warmed my heart because if you just if you don't question the systems you're working in then what's the point
1: i guess what is the leap though between saying something like that which is words and actually acting as a traitor to white supremacy and capitalism because this is actually what i
0: didn't say all that well <laughs> I'm saying it here
1: with you because this is what we actually need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need words right Mm -hmm. now. We need white people in particular to be traitors to a system that privileges and benefits them above all others. They can't just say, I recognize that I don't deserve to benefit from this. They have to actively undermine and dismantle that system along with us. That's the challenge.
0: That is the challenge. And many people... I know many black people uh, look at that challenge differently. Okay. So, uh, for example, I, there are people, it's the inside-outside thing, right? Do you, I don't know how you can effectively challenge a system from within um, if, your, if your livelihood is based on that system. Correct. That's my thing. Um however everybody has to eat I get it you know I get that but be honest
1: Oh yeah I don't want you to not eat just don't tell me that I'm eating because you are Yeah that's all
0: <laughs> That's
1: all I can't live off of the few black people who are allowed to make it to the top of these institutions who are allowed Wait to... wait
0: wait mm-hmm. why are they allowed to though why those black people because I think that's important
1: Where are the black revolutionaries that are leading government institutions. Where are the black revolutionaries who are poised to become leaders of political parties? I'm saying revolutionaries because black people come in all shapes and sizes but those people can't do that because the system is designed to make sure that they don't go anywhere if they have those values. So the black people who say all we need are some small reforms but for the most part things are working those are the only people who are allowed to keep rising to the top because they don't threaten the fundamental underpinnings of power. They're not there to overhaul everything. They're there to say a little bit at a time, small moves. I always think about um, Nina Simone in singing Mississippi Goddamn and saying they keep on saying go slow. Yeah, and That is the role of the black police chief. That is the role of the Black Immigration Minister. That is the role of the Black Crown Attorney and Police uh, uh, Officials. Is to tell us, go slowly. Don't don't wallow, Black people. It's okay. It's gonna be fine. Maybe in three or four hundred more years, we're gonna get there. Don't
0: don't get too upset.
1: <laughs> and. Um for the sake of the generations that by
0: the way, also in the next step, in the next breath, they do a Bill Cosby and say, You didn't do this, you didn't pull your pants up, you didn't do that, you're 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 too you're too you're too nigger, not enough Negro, you know, that kind of thing. And look what happened to Bill Cosby. You remember when Bill Cosby was touring around saying shit like that?
1: Yo man. But Obama did it too. Yeah. Obama really got elected telling black people to pull our pants up and this is the script that you have to follow to be palatable to white majorities. You have to do and say things like this and that's the thing is that how come black people are willing to be traitors to their own race, cause, identity but we can't ask white people to do the same thing. The only way black people move up is to betray the identities and the histories that got them to where they are. Right. We have to ask white people to become traitors against this system that privileges them too.
0: So the Malcolm X quote you used here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to get to FBC, but you said, think about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. He told me, so this is somebody an F a uh, federal black, Canadians person who challenged you on social media, right? Yeah,
1: so before you read the quote, just for a really, really quick context for people, the Federation of Black Canadians is a lobby group that I document in the second last chapter of this book because they appeared out of nowhere at the end of 2017 and proclaimed we are a new black advocacy group.
0: That nobody knew
1: about. Correct. And it was at the National Black Canadian Summit in 2017, held by the Mikhail Jean Foundation, and we were introduced to this group and they had a lot of defenders like the person who you're about to read this quote about mm-hmm. who are in the public service they're only the only people who seem to have heard anything about this group were black people connected to the government itself mm-hmm. and a lot of us thought that that was like really bizarre and was sending off warning signals to us about who is this group and What are their real intentions? So yeah, I had a conversation with this person and he was vigorously, he's a government worker and he was vigorously defending this new lobby group that none of us had heard of.
0: So he says, think about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King um, and argued that there was room for the FBC advocacy as a complementary force to groups like Black Lives Matter Toronto. I've heard that too. You said, well, I've thought about it. Malcolm X told the truth about Africans enslaved upon, on plantations in the United States. He told us to be wary of house Negroes, the few people chosen to personally serve the oppressor and enjoy more comforts at the expense of Negroes in the field. Bam, I feel like, honestly, I feel like Canada's full of house Negroes to be honest.
1: We're not even allowed to say that, except on the Bad and Bitchy podcast. That's but, right. Um, I actually I actually think...
0: I think I've said it on the podcast, so it's fine. <laughs> uh,
1: I, 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 it has like kind of dawned on me that that is the N-word for that group of people in our community. Mm-hmm. Is that they think that the worst thing that you can say is house Negro. Yeah. And I guess that label stings for some people because they don't like being called out as in service of white supremacy and my answer to that is then don't do it of
0: course yeah yeah
1: but we can't pretend that black people all have the same politics the idea that malcolm x and martin luther king jr are the only two black people by the way who have ever done anything yeah and that the only two people that can ever be compared and contrasted is so basic and so insulting <laughs> but if you're even going to do that like these two men weren't almost even ever seen in public together together. yeah yeah right and so i just think that like we do have to be honest about the fact that black people that's what that chapter which is called competing interests Mm -hmm. the second last chapter of the book that's what it's about it's about saying black people are allowed to have different politics and that i don't have to pretend that any black person taking any role Is necessarily helping me as another black person get ahead black people are socialist black people are capitalist black people are communist black people are libertarian black people don't agree because we're black and there is no way for us to debate challenge think and improve our situation unless we're willing to name and examine those disagreements
0: agreed like you and you know what it is we do have a class issue as to who has access to power say that again we have a class issue <laughs> so you said this is not the first time you're talking about FBC at the National Black Canadian Summit in Toronto this is not the first time political elites have tried to sell the black community's tireless work back to us yep that hit me i'm like yeah we are being sold this back to us You know what? Coming to think of it, this is true. Now that I think about it a little bit more. We are being sold the work that has already been done by Black Lives Matter Toronto, by um, all these groups, these grassroots groups all over the country that nobody cares to know about. And we are, it's taken by these elites, presented to... The white masters given a pat on the head and some crumbs from Mass's table, and then sold back to us as revolutionary or policy or look what we got—we got twenty-five million over five years. I'm like, listen, when that government decides to claw back some money, guess where they're going first? But.
1: How much money really is twenty five million? It's in
0: nothing.
1: The black community over five years, the government probably lost that money in the couch today. Yes, you know, like thank that, you. That's not a lot of money for our communities given the need. But I will add that um, most of the reforms that I think are necessary in our community don't have to do with spending more money. Mm-hmm. They have to do with getting the system off of our backs. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to spend any more money as far as deportation goes, just stop deporting black people. And you notice that even though we had a black minister of citizenship, immigration, and refugees who himself was a refugee, there was no overall call to stop deporting black people who have been here since they were children. So we fought for Abdul Abdi. We stopped that deportation. Then another young Somali man, Abdullahi Elmi, was put under deportation threat by this same Trudeau government. And we had to fight for that deportation to be stopped, and we stopped that one. But the government is prepared to just keep threatening to send people to places like Somalia, Mm -hmm. Haiti, places where our government says are too dangerous for Canadian officials, but we're happy to deport black people there. And in the October chapter of my book, I'm talking about Haitian people who are running away from Donald Trump's America only to find that Canada is just as willing to deport them. So what is the difference on the other side of that? Well, this is
0: what I keep saying. I struggle to see the difference between the liberals and the conservatives, or to be honest, Canadian policy and American policy. Because if you really take a look at it, the same shithole countries, the same Nigeria that America decided to just cut off visas from is the same Nigeria that is a booming in tech, number one. And number two is the same Nigeria that has most of its student visa applications um, rejected by that same Canadian government.
1: The Canadian government and the U.S. government have actually been working together to say, how do we as Canada and the United States stop Nigerians from coming when we don't want them to come? Exactly. And so that's where the solidarity lies. This idea... That, like, like what stand has Justin Trudeau taken? Justin Trudeau watched as children were being put in cages in the United States by this administration, and when he was asked about it, he said, I don't have to comment because you already know what I think about it. That's real leadership there, bro.
0: Like, I remember that, well, but this and is, I was like, no, we don't know. Well, Why but, don't you tell us?
1: But this is what's wrong with our narrative in this country, is that so long as we can focus... On the boogeyman somewhere else, we never have to talk about what our government is doing to black people in this country. We never have to talk about Justin Trudeau refusing over and over again to equalize child welfare funding for First Nations kids on reserve. The Human Rights Tribunal has ordered his government repeatedly now. To equalize that funding for those children and they keep fighting and stalling in court and spending millions of dollars to not have to pay out what people are owed in this country so I don't want to hear about a boogeyman who's going to be worse than you when this is the standard that you're trying to set for us we just need to do
0: better so exactly I remember reading about Abdul Abdi and him being kept in solitary confinement and this is an immigration detention center that we're talking about.
1: It's not an immigration detention it's center, not... it's a federal jail, it's a, it a provincial jail that has maximum security facility in it and a lot of um, immigration detainees in Canada, particularly black and Arab people, are kept in maximum security facilities. It is not a crime to claim asylum in Canada. Of course, In the white settler state, people can't imagine that the sentence that I just said is true. There is no law saying you're not allowed to come to Canada and claim asylum. You have an international and a legal right in this country and under international law to come here and claim asylum. The government does not have the legal responsibility to accept you, Mm -hmm. but it has to process your claim. So what our government does is it says, well, while we're processing your claim, Why don't you just languish in this maximum security facility as if you had just broken the law and been convicted of a crime? What crime have immigration asylum seekers been convicted of that they would end up in prison?
0: Now I get the whole... Oh my gosh, something just clicked. Did you see this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The so-called quote-unquote irregular border crossings which i don't even think is a thing because i'm sorry you know this idea that you have to present yourself at a checkpoint like what the fuck is that like what is this like are we in west bank okay first of all second of all from what i understand the safe third party agreement kicks in at those checkpoints right the
1: safe okay so the safe third country agreement says that yeah if you want to claim asylum that you can go and you can present yourself at one of these checkpoints. But, but, the government has the right to tell you, go away, we don't want to process, or even like hear your claim. However, if you sneak in, then they have to hear your claim. And that is an incentive for people to sneak in. You are making a law that almost forces people to try and sneak in. But the bigger issue for me is, Look at the Haitian community in this city here in Ottawa. Look at the Haitian community in Montreal. Explain to me why Haitian people are not good enough to get permanent residency and a pathway to citizenship. Why are so many of their claims, over 90% of the claims when the government and in 2017 and then into 2018 when they started processing these claims, how come the rejection rate was over 90% for Haitian people. What is it about them that they don't qualify for asylum? Is Haiti not one of the most dangerous places in North America right now?
0: And whose fault is
1: that? Well, we can get into that, but it's in the book. Canada, (laughs) Canada contributed over 15 years ago to destabilizing Haiti and overthrowing a democratically elected government, as we do all over the world. But now we want to send people back to Haiti. And I just want to know who that benefits. Who does keeping people who have never been convicted of a crime, keeping them in a maximum security facility and torturing them, Mm -hmm. who does that benefit in our country? Who's sleeping better at night knowing that somebody who's waiting for their asylum claim to be processed is Mm -hmm. in a jail? That's the problem with our country is that people don't want to answer questions like that, but they want to presume that there's some safety motive there. That destabilizes communities. That separates families from one another. I tell the story in the book about Beverly Brahm, who's from Jamaica, and mm-hmm. she overstayed a visa to this country, and then the government spent endless resources to try and deport her, including while she was pregnant. And the thing
0: child. is, she was married to a Canadian at the time, wasn't yeah. she? yeah and
1: people think that that gives you automatic status, and it it does, does not and yeah. uh, after she had her baby, then they said, "Well, you can go home and your canadian born baby can stay here, and that that's in the best interests of the child, so that's another black family being separated and if there are bad outcomes down the road. The government won't take responsibility for separating the family. They will simply say, look at these black people, can't parent their children, can't get through school, can't get a job. But you're the one pulling families apart.
0: I'm glad that you brought up the family because throughout the book you talk about the education system. A lot, yeah. You talk about it a lot. And the education system and the police seem almost, they seem two sides of the same coin.
1: The prison and the school bear... I mean, they, they might as well be the same place in this country. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You can call it the, the, the school-to-prison pipeline, except that the school is the prison, right? Right. Our children being disciplined in schools for talking back to a teacher and kicked out of school over that, children being handcuffed inside of their schools, programs bringing armed officers into our kids' classrooms That's, and hallways. Are the, is
0: that the student resource That's officer? That's
1: the so-called SRO program, <laughs> mm-hmm. which has not uh, just been... Uh, implemented in Toronto, but across the country now yeah. we have these police programs. And by the way, so when we talk about um, surveillance, every child in the province of Ontario has to go to school by law. Yeah. That is what the law mandates. It does not matter whether you have status or not, mm-hmm. you have to go to school until you're a certain age. Mm-hmm. But then we put police officers, active duty police officers, in the schools and they collect information on these kids who are not non-status and in Toronto there was a formal partnership between the police officers in the Toronto District School Board and Canada Border Services Agency. They were actually meeting with each other once a week. Erica, there is only one reason why our local police force would need to meet weekly with border agents. We want to pretend like they're there to so-called Build relationships. Police have one job. Enforce the law. They were collecting information. They are still in the places that they exist. All these community programs where we high-five cops while they're wearing their gun and their body armor. This is a surveillance tactic. And then when information is collected on non-status people, their children are rounded up and held for the parents to come and turn themselves in, and people are deported. It's a tactic that the state uses, it's so devastating and destructive, and it's part of the reason why I document how hard people fought in Toronto to get that program out of the Toronto District School Board. But despite the fact that that was a successful campaign, the TDSB is still trying to find new ways to bring the police back into the school and the other board in Toronto, the Catholic Board, never gave up that policing program. Mm -hmm. So now, here in uh, other places in Ontario, we see other governments trying to copy this thing of bringing police officers with guns and body armor into schools and pretending that you know what a black kid needs? He needs a role model with a license to kill him. He'll learn how to behave himself if this guy With his bulk and his body armor is always around, palling around and high-fiving, but really collecting information and surveilling.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: it's a bait and switch. First, we say it's about community safety, and then when people are like, I don't feel safe, then it's like, oh, well, that's why we're here, to build relationships with you. And we won't leave you alone. We're like the buddy that never fucking leaves.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So you have
1: to have a relationship with us now. Right. It's terrifying. Yeah. It has to stop. And... If you don't have a meal program at your local school, if you don't have childcare access because it's too expensive, Uh if your roads are ripped up, if your transit system is horrible, all that money that could be being spent on those life-saving resources is being given to your local police so that they can do these surveillance programs. You can't have it both ways. You cannot have a nice city that is full of goons running around with weapons and... It is almost like putting your life in danger as a black person to speak up and say those things. Mm-hmm. But I watched. I watched as black people in my city did just that. They came to bat for undocumented people. They came to bat for black and indigenous people who were the victims of this police program. And they said, enough.
0: So what's the difference between that and ICE, basically?
1: They are ICE. Like, it, they're literally telling the border agents, we know where the undocumented kids are. Come get them. Again, what is the difference between these two countries? But now, through things like carding, if I go to the border and I've been surveilled on by the Canadian police, mm-hmm. they are handing that information over to the Americans. And so the Americans have all the information that the Canadian police have through CSIS, through the RCMP, through OPP. Bill C-51. Informa- like, Bill
0: C-51. Like, again, it's, the, it's, it, it's not only the fact that you're being restricted in your own country. It's the fact that your own country handed over this, quote-unquote, intelligence, which really isn't intelligence because it hasn't done anything, hasn't resulted in any arrests. Nope. There's, no, there's no, like, uh, special investigation going on. It's literally not, you know, information. Anyway, all this intelligence, all this to say that everything is connected. Everything that we've talked about here Mm -hmm. is connected. Mm -hmm. And I would like white people to know that it may be happening to us now, but next generation, it's your kids. Well, so
1: I hear people saying that, and I think to myself, maybe, but maybe not. I mean, the white settler state is to kind of protect white supremacy first and foremost so solidarity means that you're going to fight against this whether it affects your children or not yes that's what solidarity really means to me is i don't want to make white people believe that their salvation is what really matters so they have to fight for us or one day it's going to be them because we've all heard that you know first they came for x And I didn't say anything. And then ultimately, what's the end of that story? Is that, oh, one day they came for me. Well, that's not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. The horrible thing that happens in that story is not that you get it in the end. The horrible thing is that everybody
0: else gets it. it, You went through
1: so many people before you got it. Yeah. While you sit back and watch. Yeah. Yeah. And so solidarity means even if it's not going to happen to me or my family, I'm outraged. I'm disgusted. I know what justice means Mm -hmm. and I want to be part of the fight back against that I mean you know the demonstration that Black Lives Matter Toronto did at Pride uh, Pride, which I document in this book and I talk about the history of black people fighting so hard to be seen in these Pride festivities right that demonstration Pulled in a huge amount of support for BLMTO, although there was also lots of criticism. But the support was very uh, much from white people who were like, but I'm in solidarity with what you're doing. Mm -hmm. From other uh, queer and trans uh, people of color who are not black but who are like, I see what you're doing and I'm in solidarity with that even though it might not be my situation. It was one of the most powerful displays of solidarity. The fact that Black Lives Matter Toronto fought for better sign language interpretation at Pride, which people didn't know
0: was part of it.
1: Everybody thought that that demonstration was only about the police because that was how our media framed it, but they had nine demands. They had them on a huge life-size piece of paper right right at the demonstration, and somehow our media didn't list those demands. They only talked about policing, but BLMTO fought for the South Asian stage Uh that had traditionally been part of Pride to be returned. They fought for Indigenous people to be more included in the leadership. They fought for people who are performers to be paid properly at Pride for giving their talents to that festivity. That was... A true act of solidarity but it was missed by a white media establishment who was like I'm threatened by you not wanting these police around yeah and so we're not going to talk about any of the other radical things that you did in order to include and enfranchise other people we're just gonna get mad over this police business solidarity is a real important thing for us to all learn because you know how like people say that thing like oh as the father of a daughter Right. what if you didn't have a daughter would that mean that you couldn't understand it solidarity means I can listen I can learn I can empathize I can respect and Mm -hmm. I can believe Mm -hmm. and I don't have to be the one being affected by it in order to know it's wrong and to fight back against it
0: so speaking of pride there is a fantastic chapter on Black Lives Matter and pride in Mm -hmm. the history of pride Mm -hmm. in Canada so yes you do mention Stonewall but it's more of a, as a framing mechanism rather than um, it being the centerpiece of what you're talking about. And um, I remember reading that, and even, like, I was at Pride that year, okay? So even me, I was like, oh, really? Like, the let's just say you filled in a lot of holes, a lot of holes. And so when we read when we read about Black Lives Matter later on, we already have this context. Yes. Because I feel like that's when you really start, like you mentioned them, but that's when you really start about their involvement in, in not only Pride, but the SRO officers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was somebody else who had been... Um, I mean,
1: BLMTO uh, fought for John Samuels. John that Samuels, that yeah. He was raided. Um, BLMTO fought for Abdul Abdi by taking over Minister Hussein's office and demanding that the deportation. They are in so many chapters. BLMTO fought for Beverly Brom to stop her deportation. They have been instrumental in bringing to life the kind of values that are needed for our liberation. And they were so active during the time that I was writing this that I included all of those interventions and tried to show people the scope. Of what I have seen them do because what they have been able to accomplish is truly remarkable
0: so also they've also been able to export it in terms of pride the police not having that conversation and I didn't realize that they had exported all of that I know I know that I I felt it in Ottawa That Mm -hmm. people were I was like Ottawa like honestly, sometimes Ottawa surprises me pleasantly, sometimes, (laughs) (laughs) other times not so much, but the, like, the fact is, is that um, the gay community in Ottawa was talking about this, and talking about police, and at Pride, and talking about them wearing their uniforms, or not wearing their uniforms, and so on and so forth, so I thought they just exported it throughout Canada, but they exported this issue worldwide.
1: What happened after BLMTO did that demonstration is that you start to see, just in Canada the following year, that places across the country, Vancouver, uh, Fredericton, like they're having a parallel conversation about do we really need to have uniformed police officers at Pride when there continues to be so much hatred discrimination and harm by police officers towards queer and trans people, like, is this really the time to be pretending that everything is okay and centering policing in a celebration that is only necessary because of police brutality? Like, let's be honest. But
0: capitalism made that happen.
1: Well, there's a lot of money to be made by uh, uh, this pinkwashing that we talk about where corporations drape themselves in the rainbow flag for one week. There's a lot of money to be made there, and they have realized mm-hmm. that. So that's a big part of this whole industry now. But let's be clear that the police are the reason why there needed to be a pride, because of things like the Stonewall riots, mm. because of the 1981 bathhouse raids that I documented yep. in this book. But there's also raids like the trucks one in Montreal, the Pussy Palace raid in Toronto in 2000. Yep. These things are part of our history. And then I talk about Marie Curtis Park, in um, 2016, right after BLMTO stopped the parade and everybody said it wasn't necessary, we found out about an undercover operation in a park in Etobicoke in Toronto called Marie Curtis Park that police were putting undercover officers to try and catch men trying to meet one another and arresting them and giving them charges in 2016, right after BLMTO stopped the Pride parade. So this is the ongoing history of policing and of homophobia, of transphobia. In they didn't province. even want to
0: find a serial killer in, in, the, in you know, the gay village. Yes,
1: the story of Bruce, Bruce MacArthur so... also figures so heavily the disappearance uh, uh, of, 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 of trans people from Toronto, the death of Samaya Dalmar yeah. that many people did not feel was ever adequately investigated by the police. The violence continues, the neglect continues, and white supremacy never wants... To be held accountable for its own violence and I think that you know BLMTO and others insisting that they do be held accountable
0: is it's the kind of action that we needed so then I go back to these black leaders and just like what are they doing if they're not doing that work if you're not doing that kind of work that matters on an individual basis and matters to a community then what is the point I mean obviously we we both know the answer to this it's to it's to is to prune their own feathers and line their own pockets. I get it. And it's about power, I get it. Um, And a fraction of power, because apparently a fraction is just as good as the whole to to some people.
1: Well, you know what, when you tell black people that we're lucky to have even the little that we do, everything seems like manna from heaven after that, yeah, 25 million over five years from a federal government, like how much money is the federal government spending trying to push the Wet'suwet'en people off of their territory right now. Like, they can spend $25 a probably in a week, Yeah. right? But they flash this at our community after giving us nothing for so long, and we're really supposed to be grateful for it. So these are crumbs compared to what we really need and deserve as black people, and we shouldn't be afraid to truly ask for what we want and need.
0: So what will black liberation take?
1: Everything. From everyone black liberation isn't
0: what our... does it look like first of all well
1: I think um, there's a lot of imagining that has to go into the idea of black liberation because we don't live in a world where those conditions are possible right now we live in a country that tells us any idea of really liberating black people by prison abolition police abolition ending the severe discipline in our schools, reuniting families across borders, that all these things threaten the white supremacist settler state. Mm -hmm. So we're not even allowed to dream of them. But, yes, a world where black people can travel freely, one of the most basic and fundamental things is when I think of liberation. I think of the right of all people, but particularly black people, to be able to move where we need to move, without somebody violently trying to get in our way. That is liberation to me. Liberation is black people having the means to seek out an education for themselves. Liberation is black people um, having the opportunity to engage in the arts, to read, to write poetry, to dance, to sing.
0: To frolic.
1: To frolic, literally, without fear that there's going to be a consequence at the end of that. Um Black liberation means truly making strides towards a world where being black doesn't have to be erased. It can be celebrated for its own right. That is the fundamental problem with this whole diversity, multiculturalism approach that's being taken. Tell me. It seeks to wipe out blackness and tell us... That being black is no more special than anything else. I fundamentally disagree with that. And we are only going to get free as black people if we're allowed to do it while still remaining black and not becoming something else. So black liberation also means celebrating blackness rather than putting it on a list or hiding it in a corner.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And how?
1: Oh, Erica. (laughs) Wait, the, wait, wait, wait. The, there
0: is a piece in here. Go ahead. There's a piece I, well, in here I, where I'm just like, I, I, there's I, a how in here. There's a how. I think there's you a, wrote a how. I wrote a whole book. I wrote a <laughs> whole book. Come on man.
1: And, 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 and the resistance that I see, the power that black people express, the power of indigenous people coming and disrupting Canada 150 with a teepee ceremony. These are the steps toward our liberation. We might not be able to see the whole picture right now, but we do know what resistance and fighting back looks like. So all the acts that I document in this book are the kinds of things that we need to do. There's no magic answer that gets us there. We just have to resist in the ways that our ancestors have taught us to do and to care for and love one another along the way, as Asada Shakur said.
0: Yeah, I I have to say, there are a lot of triumphs in this book, too. Yep. And it's only when I got to the end that I got, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Because the the last one was the story of Abdul Abdi. And I remember that moment when it was announced that they were going to, I think, get rid of the deportation order. And I was like, I remember thinking, Desmond. (laughs) <laughs> I know it wasn't just you. No, it wasn't just I know you. L Jones is like hardcore. It, and it
1: was Idil Abdullahi. Yeah. It was L Jones. It was Fatouma. Fatouma,
0: yes. Fatuma. sister. But you know what was great? Okay, so this is what it was exciting me. And I'm glad it, 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 it kind of ended on this note. Is that you talked about... The solidarity across it was it was almost like the underground railroad of solidarity because the the PM went to Halifax to do um, a town hall in January of 2018. Right. And was it Fatuma or was it it Amina? It
1: was Fatuma that confronted the prime minister directly. Right. Well, I'm kind of giving away like really important
0: part. okay sorry sorry anyway anyway <laughs> she confronted the pm yes, she did and uh was basically like bro like y- my brother is, is is about to die what the fuck are you doing about it and he's like er, well er, there are a lot of like what i i'm sure you know the case better than i do but you know can you know it's like pete buddha judge platitudes from this guy okay and then and then he goes to, I think, uh, Hamilton, is it?
1: That's correct. The next night.
0: The next night he goes to Hamilton. And, and another supporter of Abdul Abdi got up and basically grilled him in public. And what I keep saying to people is that bureaucracies are not used to, to being held accountable the one thing that they're scared of is light the spotlight right if you put the spotlight on that very bureaucrat okay that signed whatever the other thing too is that canada is also a country of administrative tribunals and that's where that's where the decisions are made so i'm just saying hint hint um that's how it works so can you imagine if the immigration and refugee board was just filled with like immigrants and refugees what if we didn't need an immigration and refugee? Policy? I knew you were okay. going to say that. No, I, had no. a, I, had a, I had a feeling. I was like, I was that's, like, that's, I, that's the dreaming. I the dreaming will that, go. That's
1: the dreaming that we have to
0: do. Yes, to. yes, yes. So, last question. Last time I saw you, you know what you said to me? Tell me. You said masculinity is basically insecurity. Mm. Explain. I've been thinking about this ever since you told me this, by the way.
1: Um, Okay, I'll give you an example that just happened to me recently. Uh, We are trying to militarize our transit system in Toronto because the government doesn't fund transit and instead of taking accountability for that themselves, they've decided, you know whose fault it is that we have a bad transit system? It's the poor's fault. Mm -hmm. It's the people who we've priced out of the system who still want to ride so that they can come downtown and make us lattes and make us food, but we are so ungrateful for that labor that we don't even think that they should be allowed to ride the transit system that we've priced them out of. Same thing
0: is happening in New York, speaking of two countries that are the same. Absolutely. Yeah. So um,
1: I saw two very beefy, bulky fare inspectors at a local station the other day, and I confronted them about why they are doing this. And I personally hate to see these like bodybuilder looking men standing there trying to intimidate poor people away from the transit system that they're supposed to own. And um, these men couldn't handle two or three questions from me, even though I'm just, you know, a 5 foot 8, 140 pound soaking wet black person who just had a couple of pointed questions And it turned into this whole, like, how dare you question us, we're good people, we're trying to do our jobs, but your job is literally to terrify people. And I think that, yeah, masculinity is about, like, this constant um, need to be reassured of, like, all these things that I'm doing In the world, they might not be right, they might not be okay, but I deserve them. And how dare you make me feel bad about it? Mm -hmm. And the slightest prick to the masculine ego, the slightest, I don't agree, I'm not going to go along. Mm -hmm. It's like the end of the world for masculinity, and that's why it defends itself so violently. So when I said that masculinity is about insecurity yeah, that violence comes from a place of men not knowing how to define ourselves outside of aggression. Mm-hmm. That is what toxic toxic masculinity means to me, and uh, it's something we ought to deal with.
0: Okay, that's it for our podcast. Our bonus pod. Thank you, Desmond. It's a pleasure to be with you, Erica. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you for being so candid. Like I just didn't want this to turn out to be like, you know the agenda or something. This is a bad and Come on. Now. I know. <laughs> Where are we? Where are we? What is exactly. It? But you really have informed a lot of my own activism. I don't know if you know this, but you did.
1: That's very kind. Thank
0: you. No, it's true. So, by the way, I look forward to... Um, you know what the goldmine is of that book, too? The citations. hmm So the citations are what I want to get into next. Because I think it will just, I have this idea forming in my head, and I think it will just inform my own sort of, you know, opinion writing, let's say that. So thank you. Where can people find you?
1: I'm on Twitter at Desmond Cole. And other than that, you can find me going all around the country right now promoting The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power by Doubleday Books. Uh, I'm going to Montreal tomorrow. Halifax on Thursday, and next week I'll be in Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver. No way, you're going. Sorry, Calgary, Winnipeg, and Vancouver.
0: So you're hitting the whole space back. I'm just getting started. Oh, yes.
1: College campuses across this country, I want to go see you, university campuses across this country. I want to come and visit. I want these books in your bookstore. I want to talk about this and continue the conversation.
0: Also, do you not have a blog? Are you still writing in your blog?
1: Yeah, it's called Cole's Notes. (laughs) <laughs> nice it's a wordpress blog but yeah i still publish things every now and again there and too.
0: what's the address
1: oh my god i it, just google i know i should never say that but just google cole's notes and you will find it okay. c-o-l-e apostrophe s notes and say my name after desmond cole and then, and then, then you'll find it
0: okay now we have to say bye together bye,
1: bye. My Bad and <laughs> based in the law. Okay. Wait, who's this? Uh
0: Shireen. Razzik. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. Read this book yet, okay. I, I need to. So the first like this book is so it's so deep and intricate, I had to take breaks. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's it explains the whole conquering nature canadiana thing mm-hmm. in terms of white supremacy and I went
1: Yeah, tyrannous. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then it explains why we treat uh, a well, not all of it, but part of the reason why we treat First Nations as we do, everything is for the furtherance of that white development arc. Mm. Everything. Mm. nature is for that, other people of color are for that. Mm-hmm. That is the ultimate is 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 so that you, white person, can develop yourselves into something great. And then when they bring diversity into the mix, which is a word I hate, but I use it a lot because, you know, um, it's like, yes, you too are part of the enterprise to help me, like, evolve. So bring that back to the West Indian domestic scheme immigration. And then you have, I just kept linking, I just link things too. I keep, I kept linking pieces and pieces back to each other. And even the pieces that were in disparate chapters, they had an arc. Right. That's my point.
1: That that That's literally why <clears throat> I don't like the word inclusion. Yeah. Because who is choosing to include whom?
0: Yeah. Right? And yeah. for what purpose? Exactly.
1: Like, what if you didn't have the power to include me? What if I was just there? Yeah. And it, like, you didn't have nothing to say about me. Yeah. Right? So, so all of these things, they are. It's like that, that's like you know, um, um, white supremacy has. I say in the book like it's it's, it's given everybody a role to play. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think black liberation has to do the same thing. Black liberation has to say like this is actually okay,
0: for okay. So that's my last question: Is what does black liberation look Let me like? Go there. Okay, Here's good. Uh, I may be there's a lot of police in here. Um, you know about the no. police. Okay. So, naturally, we're going to have to talk about the police. Of
1: course.
0: And how much... And then I started... Oh, I st- Listen, I went down a rabbit hole uh-huh. these past two days that I'm just like, I don't know if I should have gone down this hole, but fuck it. <laughs> 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 okay. So...